0: Here we go! Nice and quiet!
1: Sound speeds, camera rolling. Holding for sound. Last looks. Calling for last looks. And set, and...
2: Action!
0: I need to swap batteries. You know, making movies is hard.
1: Making movies is hard.
0: Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I am Art Brassell, the founding host of the podcast. I've been crewing up on sets for over ten years. I've made dozens of films. Uh, Shorts and features, either as a producer or director, and I'm just finishing up my very first feature as a writer-director called The Alternate.
1: I'm Liz Manichell. I'm a writer-director-producer with two features under my belt and a third one. You know, maybe it'll happen at some point. Who knows? Um, I am also a former film critic, a current distribution consultant, and I used to manage the creative distribution initiative at Sundance.
0: This week, we have filmmaker and director Chelsea Christer on the show to talk about making her first feature documentary, Bleeding Audio, and a journey to getting the film made and how she navigated her festival journey to land at Slamdance and actually win the George Stark Spirit of Slamdance Award, which is super awesome. Uh, we also talk about why Chelsea made a documentary over a feature fiction feature and that, how she plans to make the leap from documentary feature to fiction feature director. We're going to jump right into the interview, but don't go anywhere because we also have director Lena Pendharker Pendharkar Pendharkar, maybe, I don't know. On the show to talk about her brand new short film called Awaken, starring Parminder Nagra of ER fame and oh of course we all know her from Bend It Like Beckham, which she was amazing in of course. And we'll also do another installment of the You've Got Mail uh, segment and catch up on some uh, male YouTube comments as we normally do. But without any more pontification, here's our conversation with Chelsea.
1: Chelsea, thank you for joining us. Can you give us the elevator pitch for Bleeding Audio?
2: Absolutely. So Bleeding Audio is a music documentary that follows the rise, fall, and rise of the band The Matches. Uh, We use their story to dig a little deeper into how the music industry has changed in the new digital landscape, but also um, how the community that uh, music creates is kind of what's keeping our bands alive today.
0: And how many days did you shoot the film?
2: (laughs) I literally have no idea. (laughs) <laughs> um a lot <laughs> we have 55 interviews that i actually shot for the film i think like 38 of them ended up making the final cut and then we filmed every single reunion show um so so a lot and then i filmed a bunch of stuff of the band uh actually recording new music and not a frame of that went in the film so oh, wow. bonus know, features distribution stuff. yeah exactly <laughs> um Can you speak to the rough budget? And if, just tell us what you can. Um, Well, uh, I can get my bank account statement from like five years ago and tell you what the difference is from then and now. Um, (laughs) But uh, what I will tell you is that we did have two Kickstarter campaigns that were uh, successfully funded by the amazing community of Matches fans and uh, people who have followed me and my work over the years. And we raised, I believe about $88,000 through the two campaigns collectively.
0: Wow, um, how long did you spend working on the film from you know starting it to releasing it?
2: So I would argue that the first uh, shoot for the film was March 4th, 2014. Um, that's when I was doing promotional videos for the band themselves and started to realize that there was something bigger happening. Um, but the actual first treatment I wrote in July of 2014 and our first Kickstarter uh, went up in August of 2014 and we started filming their reunion shows in November of 2014. And then we printed the final cut February 2020. Wow. <laughs> um,
1: there are so many sub questions in that um, that we will get to. I promise. Oh, I, 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 why am I promising? I hope that we'll get to them. Um, how big was your crew?
2: Um, well, a lot of it is, you know, crew of one uh, and often, um, I would work with DPs that I've worked with over the years on corporate content. Um, I would say that there were three major contributing, uh, DPs over the course of the six years that I worked on it. Um, and then a number of camera operators who have, who supported me on days when my primary, um, folks were unavailable. And then, uh, you know, there's two editors. Uh, we had a series of producers, um, currently the, Producer who helped me carry it across the finish line and also helped carry me across the finish line uh, is Aaron Persley. Um, so yeah, <laughs> wow. a mix.
0: I have a sub question I'm going to ask about yeah. that. Is we, we can't on ask your big,
2: questions? Yeah, I What's have doing? to
0: ask a sub question. So <laughs> on your biggest day, what was your biggest crew? Oh, three
2: That's people, four people, three, see, three wow. or four people.
0: So you didn't have like four cameras shooting the shows or anything like that and all this stuff?
2: No, it was usually just one wow. camera guy and me. I, um, I, um, I also shot a lot of the documentary myself. Wow. Documentary filmmaking. Yeah.
3: <laughs> oh, oh yeah. I have to
0: ask this question. Damn, yeah, okay, compared to all the question. other projects <laughs> you've made, how difficult was this one to make?
2: Um, uh, is there a scale? Is there like a, yeah. a scale? Of... It's
0: a
1: definite binary system, of course.
2: Um, out of all the projects that I've ever made, this is the most difficult thing I've probably ever done in my whole life <laughs> is get this thing done. <laughs> <laughs> it took six and a half years. So, wow. you know. Nice. <laughs>
1: Um, I want to know what you, like what, and I'm, you've said this like 30 times, I'm sure everyone is going to ask this question. (laughs) Um, you were shooting promotional material for the band. You realized there was a bigger story. Why did, what gave you the confidence that there was something bigger that was worth investing time and energy into it?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, these guys are in my inner circle, you know, I've known them for a really long time. So I knew them all as characters. And I feel like when you're a filmmaker, you kind of distill all the people in your life down to characters because you know, you're stealing parts of them for stuff that you're writing anyway. And so I knew all these guys very well and I always found them to be really compelling. And I just knew them to be really good humans. And I've always loved their music. And um, I thought that I knew their whole story Um, And when I actually started doing these just promotional video interviews, I was just kind of getting like a rough retrospective of their career. And I've learned a lot more that I that I thought I knew. And um, and it was really just things about, you know, opportunities that had been presented to them, like the extreme amount of interest that they had had. But also, I knew the end of the story also. So I was learning about this whole middle part um, that was that was something that I just had never known, even as an insider. But also, I've always been compelled by how the industry has shifted for artists and comparing it to my own career as a filmmaker and kind of looking to the music industry as, oh, hey, those are the red flags. Um, And just kind of seeing how the music industry adapted, maybe not very well. And I felt like. There was a bigger story to tell about a band I loved, about characters of these guys who I loved, um, while using that personal story to tell this bigger one of this sort of like beating drum of how the industry shifted and how that was a big contributor to what took them out in the end.
0: Um, Wow. Like the thing that I keep on going back to from what you said earlier is why would you shoot 55 interviews? It's a lot of interviews for a movie.
2: <laughs> I know, and that's the thing is, I feel like I um, the 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 biggest reason is because I thought I was telling two stories, right? I was telling the matches story, and I was telling the story about the music industry. And I knew I had these two like uh, pie charts or Venn diagrams, if you will, of like people who knew the matches and supported their career, people who knew mu- who knew the music industry inside it out, and could be um, you know validating president presences to like give that you know story weight and credibility. And I overlapped those Venn diagrams and interviewed basically everybody instead of just focusing on the people in the middle. And what wow. ended up happening in, in the film is um, honestly, unintentionally, um, I, I used just about all the interviews and it was in our test screenings where the people who were in the music industry expert category, those segments people just weren't as connected to them because they loved the characters of the matches they loved when people could tell anecdotal stories about them and um you know finding that humanity is what gets people more engaged with a story even if you're trying to kind of like signal something maybe a bit bigger um you know people who are just like experts just suddenly aren't quite as interesting you know and so the experts that we knew could um could really drive the human story home were people who had a direct touch point with the matches so like Mark Hoppus from Blink 182, Nick Hexum from 311, they're like rock star giants but they also had this you know one-on-one connection with developing the matches and witnessing their talent so it added a layer of credibility for the band but also like was able to bring that music industry weight that we were looking for. So part of it was like a little bit of green documentary filmmaker oh, let's just get everything. <laughs> you know, we're here. Um, but another side of it was my original treatment was weighted more 60-40 in music industry and matches story. And it became more 80-20 um, in the end.
1: In the matches favor. Yes. So this is your first feature, am I right? And, yes. Okay. And um, Did you think your first feature was going to be a documentary? Did you, or are you, because I know you're working on other things, so I'd love to hear your perspective about genre.
2: Yeah, I definitely did not think my first feature would be a documentary. I thought my first feature would be a narrative. That was kind of my trajectory. Um, You know, my first short was a silent narrative. My second um, was a narrative that I had uh, written and directed. And, um, you know, I just naturally thought I'd move into scripted, scripted feature. But at the time I was actually doing a ton of doc styled work, brand documentaries and, um, and other things that, uh, gave me more of a comfort in the format. And so, um, I think too, for me, I had just wrapped my whole festival journey with my short film and I was in that post-project depression, you know, where you're like, what, what am I going to do next? You know, what is my next project going to be? I fell in my lap in a way. And it was something that, um, I knew that no one else was gonna do it. And I also knew no one else was gonna have the access to, to be able to tell this story. And so it kind of felt like I became this this film's and the story's little champion and the torch holder along the way.
0: <laughs> so how did you uh, secure your interviews for the movie? Was it all through the matches contacts or did you have to like, like, you know, reach out to agents to get people? Like how did that work?
2: So the matches provided me a spreadsheet of names and phone numbers and email addresses. Um, And I went through and kind of qualified a few of them and made decisions and cuts. Um, And then there were a few people who did require uh, like third party connections. But I'll be honest, like two of our biggest interviews, Cassidy Pope and um, Mark Hoppus, I like called out on Twitter.
0: (laughs) Oh, wow.
2: I literally, um, I, I remember it was really important to me to have um, a, a woman from that era that the matches were in speak to the industry at that time. And to be honest, pop punk wasn't very good to, to like diversity. There weren't a lot of, um, you know, people of color. There weren't a lot of women in that um, industry. So pickings were a little slim. And so I remember Cassidy Pope was a big matches fan. And it was a band that um, the matches had, Hey Monday was a band that the matches had supported. So I just decided to reach out on Twitter and say, Hey, I'm making a matches doc. You want to, you want to join in? And she said, yes, instantly. And we worked with a third party uh, group of people for her. And then with Mark Hoppus, I did actually have his email, which is why it's really funny. I had to go through Twitter, but um, I had a few uh, people who had worked with Mark before who like helped boost my little Twitter response to him. <laughs> and um, it took a year to schedule the interview, um, but he eventually he eventually got on board. <laughs> wow.
1: Can you talk a little bit about the festival run for the film and and what that's been like? I mean, I know of some pretty exciting successes you've had, but no. Oh,
2: thank you. Um yeah. So, um we had our world premiere at Cinequest on March 7th, 2020. Wow. Uh it was an in- in-person screening. It was also one of their last because that same morning they announced that they were shutting the festival down the following Monday and it was a Saturday. Um, so our sold out screening ended up having a few, um, you know, people who didn't, who didn't show. Um, in retrospect, 100% do not blame them.
3: <laughs> we,
2: uh, we had a really wonderful magical night though. And by my understanding, no one got sick, which is amazing. But we had this beautiful screening at City Quest, and then afterwards we had a little secret show at a, at a uh, bar around the corner, we had the matches play and we totally blew the minds of this um, uh, brewery that we were at. It was wonderful and it was great. Um, and then everything shut down. <laughs> and after working six years on something, it's, you know, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was tough. Um, the, the pandemic hit me really hard. Um, I believe the sentences I used were hard work doesn't pay off and the universe has it out for me, (laughs) you know, (laughs) things like that, (laughs) Um, knowing that there were much bigger and worse things going on. But in my own little bubble, it was uh, it was a very weird time. And um, ultimately, you know, my producer Aaron and I, we had, um, you know, we after a couple months of that, like, you know, deep, dark. Oh, we had our world premiere. And now what? Um, we decided to just have a sink and decide, hey, what do we want to do? Do we want to wait? Do we want to do virtual festivals? Because stuff was starting to pick up virtually. Um, and I had a talk with, um, with a couple other filmmakers just asking, like, where are you guys at? What are you guys feeling, you know? I, I wanted to, like, understand, you know, what the implications were going virtual. Because at the time, too, a lot of places were saying oh distributors won't go after you if you do virtual release and you know all these other all these other big scary things and the truth was is like you know when it boiled down to it it was like oh do you want to hold your career back another year or do you want to like get your film out there and then get it so you can start making the next one cuz let me tell you after working on something for 6 years like you really want to work on the next one too you love <laughs> this one it is your baby but you're ready for the next baby right and so um, we decided to go virtual, and it was awesome. You know, we did SF Doc Fest, we did Dances with Films, um, we did Sound Unseen, we did Denver Film Festival, and Lake County Film Festival, all in the fall of 2020. And we won awards at almost all of them, which was really amazing. Um, we found out that we won the Audience Award at Cinéquest when it was in person. <laughs> We won the Audience Award at Dances with Films and um, also at SF Doc Fest, So it was, um, it felt really validating and the virtual circuit was a way to engage a wider audience. But also as a music documentary, we kind of have a built in fan base. And so we were also able to like socialize our fans to independent film and that was really exciting. Being able to talk to Matches fans who I've been like engaged with for years working on this project and having them geek out with the, with me about the other films that they're watching was, it just felt really cool to open them up to that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and they've also been hugely instrumental in like helping us and supporting us through these festivals. Um, and then we kind of thought, oh, what's gonna happen for 2021? Do we wrap it up, you know? And then we found out that we got into Slam Dance. And that was a huge. I mean, oh my god! Like w- the dream, the dream. You know, that's it's one of those dream festivals, and um, yeah, we did Slam Dance, and now we're kind of doing more festivals. You and- won an award at Slam Dance. We did. <laughs> uh, we won the uh, Spirit of Slam Dance award, yeah. which felt pretty cool. Um, and uh, yeah, we're just going
1: <laughs> i have a follow-up to that sorry i yeah uh but not, not sorry um so <laughs> you're you're talking of it you know as if it's almost happenstance that these festivals said yes and that you ha- you know there's kind of like a fluidity to it but did you strategize were you like we're gonna apply to this festival we're gonna start our festival submissions in this month so that we have the best chance to get into like was there any kind of yeah tell tell me how how you built this festival list
2: yeah i mean we had a strategy. <laughs> and it kind of went out the window because, like, the festival timings all changed, you know, mm-hmm. like Dances with Films and SF Doc Fest, that was going to be our, like, summer experience, you know, and it became our fall experience. The Denver Film Festival, too, like, that was also going to be our, like, winter closing out thing, you know, and so, um, yeah, like we kind of had to throw strategy out the window, you know? We had a bunch of festivals that we knew we felt like very well aligned with and we were strategic in like where we submitted. Um, but I mean, it just a lot of the festivals that we submitted to and are still waiting to hear back from either canceled um or are like postponing until this fall. And so it's, it's kind of a weird place where I still don't even know, you know, the, the whole festival strategy that I had had in my mind for, you know, the years leading up to our, you know, launch. It just it just vanished in a second because the, suddenly the timelines were all different. So it felt exciting to get slam dance, but also felt weird because usually slam dance is what kicks off your run right. and it kind of came in the middle. And so now we're at this point where all the other films and filmmakers I've been talking to from the festival are like gearing up and like ramping up. And I'm like, we're kind of like trying to ramp down, you know, like we're trying we're we're definitely still doing festivals and we got some wonderful, beautiful invitations um, post slam dance. Um, But yeah, it's it's like we're just kind of playing it by ear instead of being you know the, yeah. instead of following the strategy that we had planned for so long you know it's a very weird place to be in as a planner it's like I, I don't really know what's happening
0: <laughs> <laughs> so are you like actively seeking distribution now or are you kind of waiting for the festival run to end before you start like actually trying to secure a deal
2: um I don't know if I can fully answer that right now um, okay <laughs> It's 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 a little complicated, but uh, we we have had a little bit of interest, um, and we're uh, hoping to secure distribution for a fall release. Um, but we're kind of navigating a, a bit of a unique situation, and um, once that is uh, resolved, um, we'll we'll be we'll be able to kind of carry forward. <laughs> but um, it it should. I'm actually... dying to know now. This is I know, so I... vague <laughs> that I'm like more I'm, curious. I'm really sorry. It, it, I literally. Like, can't talk about it on a recorded thing, but I'm happy to talk about it afterwards. Um, but, but basically, what I will say is, um, our goal is to have like a fall release, or um, right now, we you know, we're trying to figure out like what the landscape is, right? Is because we keep being told by people in the know that um, all the studios are going to start releasing films in the fall, so it's gonna be really competitive. So you wanna try and get in on that like late summer, early fall release. Yeah. And that's something that we really wanna do. But we also really strongly feel like our film deserves a theater experience. We really wanna do an indie theater run where we can partner with the matches and do like actual live shows in partnership with a film screening. Um, we, you know, That has been a part of our you know, rollout plan since the start. And um, also the matches have started recording new music. And um, I would love to be able to release the film in partnership with a record release for them. I feel like strategically that makes sense for them and for us. And so that happening in the fall might be a little premature. So maybe a spring release, but I also wanna have a distribution partner that like I can strategize with and they can kind of help use their expertise. And I can use my expertise in the matches and our film to be able to find the right um the right moment and the right strategy for this, because um, I, I I find that um, I, I I mean, I've been in this world for six years, seven years now, you know, and i I know my film really well. but like I'm still learning the industry landscape and I'm still learning that market, and I do want to collaborate with someone who knows that who knows that very well. So um, I think in a in a distributor, what we are looking for is someone who can like help us craft something that, has the impact that we want, um, but can also, you know, be a great fit for um, for the matches rollout in ours.
1: When, that- you, um, when we talk offline and you share all the good gossip that you're not sharing with us right now, <laughs> I will also do a formal pitch to work with you because that's literally what I do, is oversee distribution strategy. So whether we work together or not, you're just saying all these very exciting things because filmmakers <laughs> never want to get involved in distribution. And you're saying that your knowledge and your passion will only benefit the release of the film. And I think that's a fantastic perspective.
2: Yeah, I mean, I would love to just be leveraged, you know? I think that that's something that, um... I, you know, I, I care a lot about this film. And I also, I really feel like the film's a conversation starter, you know, and that's, and that's what I wanted it to be is, you know, at first I wanted to get into the nitty gritty and the minutia of how the music industry has changed for artists and how we can, you know, help support our artists to have more sustainable, you know, lives, you know, because really this film exemplifies that it's like very hard for musicians to live a life, (laughs) you know, and, um, I, You know, of course, when you're filling out grant paperwork too, you get real in your head about what your impact plan is, you know, like documentary (laughs) filmmakers have to know their impact plan. And I really, you know, meant it when I filled out those forms, you know, like I really do want to engage schools. I really do want to engage like nonprofit music organizations. Like I really do want to do that rollout. And I would love to have a distribution partner that wants to work with me and like, you know, challenge me, but also like, you know, utilize me, you know, like I'm, you know, I've been this film's biggest advocate from the start and I don't want to be like, you know, I don't want to have tentacles and everything, but I definitely want to be leveraged, you know. And I feel like that's that's what's exciting for me about the film and the opportunities that it could present, you know, long term. So, yeah.
0: So, so it sounds like, although you've been working on this thing for six or seven years, that you're ready for another two years that you don't seem to, you know, be, because a lot of the filmmakers are like, when they're done with something, they're like, okay, next thing. But you're like saying, oh, yeah, I'll put in the time. I'll do all the distribution stuff. So, I mean, are you, are you trying to work on your next project at the same time as, you know, seeing through this distribution? Are you going to stay focused on uh, bleeding audio just until it's like all wrapped up?
2: I've, I would love to do both, you know, um, I haven't been just working on bleeding audio, I've been doing a lot of writing in the background, you know, and um, I have three, three feature films in various stages of, um, you know, of completion, uh, the screenplays and completion that I would just love to actually do next, you know, and I also feel like after working on a documentary for this long, like, I'm just ready for something that's a little more grounded, a little more controlled, um a little more you know scheduled is what i'm looking forward to and knowing (laughs) knowing a schedule like i i know my i I don't know i know that i'd be able to support bleeding audio and distribution and be able to fit in time for my next project you know for whatever whatever it is
1: Well, um, I want to talk a little bit about um, leading a sustainable career. I think you spoke to the fact that you've done some commercial directing and then also I'm sure that you're getting some festival fees from Bleeding Audio and there's kind of calling together all these things to fund development and pre-production for your next project. Can you talk a little bit about how you can lead a life where you're making art um, for a living?
2: Yeah, I mean... I think I'm still learning, you know? Um, the biggest thing for, for Bleeding Audio is I more or less sustained a full-time career throughout making Bleeding Audio. And that wasn't always, you know, a healthy mental health choice, you know? Is working, you know, working a very demanding day job and then also, you know, kind of, you know, ushering away in the evenings and weekends. It's, it's a lot, you know? It's a lot to do for, you know, a long, long period of time. But it was able to pay my bills. And also, you know, I, I've been across, <laughs> in Bleeding Audio's lifetime, I have been at three different agencies. And um, I was able to kind of leverage the tools at those agencies to help with production. You know, they were more than happy to grant me access to tools and resources, you know, like cameras and stuff to be able to, to film, my, film uh, my project. And that was, you know, and that was incredibly generous of them. And I also, you know, made connections with other filmmakers who were excited to support. Um, you know, when we went and filmed at Epitaph one day, a couple of people who I had met through, you know, through work, oh my God, they were so excited. They were like, we don't care, you know, no budget. We totally understand. We just want to be at Epitaph and just walk those halls, you know, and um, and that was cool. You know, it was, it was exciting to meet people who were excited to like collaborate. So um, there were, that you know that was a way to kind of be able to do both you know be do like corporate video directing by day and you know be able to like be the indie film director by night um but now you know i i find that um i just i do have a hunger for for more creative work um and i want to see if there is a way to do that you know instead of doing the you know 70% 70% corporate video work, 30% like personal work, I'd love to see if I could flip the scales, you know? And that's something that I'm, you know, learning and experimenting with and seeing what what's possible. But um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I have an answer. Um, <laughs> but I don't think anyone does. No, <laughs> I think too. Though um, if there's anything that Bleeding Audio taught me is that like your bank account should not be your budget, <laughs> um, and um, you should definitely you know take the time you need. And like if you need to take a break, take a break. That was that was the big thing for Bleeding Audio for me was there were times where you know like I remember we were just going to a barbecue and I like had a breakdown and I was like, I don't want to talk to anybody. They're going to ask me about bleeding audio. I don't want, I don't want to hear about it. Like I don't want anyone to ask me how it's going because I'm just going to walk out. I'm just going to leave, (laughs) you know? And I felt like that was a moment that I realized I was like, I think I need to take some time from the project for a bit and like kind of recharge my, my love of it and, uh, and get back to it. So I think like, Balance is a thing that, you know, no one, I don't think anyone has it perfectly in place. And it's something that you kind of got to learn for yourself over time and I'm still learning.
0: So you're saying over the time of Bleeding Audio you were at three different agencies, but were you always a full-timer or did you have times where you were working as a freelancer as well?
2: Um, There was uh, like a one and a half year period in that window where I was working as a freelancer. And that oh, was the this... healthiest balance with bleeding audio oh. that I had actually. Interesting. Because um, I was able to dictate my, my time on the project. And um, that's something that I was never able to do as a full timer. But also, once we were in post-production, it was way, way easier to like allocate time after hours and on weekends. But during production, it was essential for me to go freelance, honestly.
0: Because, you know, I've been a freelancer for, oh my God, what was like, I was eight years, I guess, in a row of just freelance. And then now recently I've joined a company as a full-timer and I'm still trying to figure out what I prefer. Because like, there's definitely times as a freelancer where, you know, you're starving for work, you got to pay the bills. And so you just take everything, just say yes. And then suddenly you've said yes to way more than you can do. And then you're just drowning in work. And then like your movie gets neglected. You don't have time to work on it, you know? Um but like there is some, there's definitely a balance to be had. But I think sometimes as a freelancer, it was hard for me to find the balance because I was so hungry for work all the time, or like worried that I was not was going to miss out on work. Um, so I'm hoping as a as a full timer, I can like, you know, find this place of like, oh, okay, yeah, you know, like I can I can schedule time for my movie throughout my job. But um, I don't know. It's interesting to hear that you think the freelance freelance time was better for you.
2: I did find that it was another learning experience, you know, was when I first started freelance, I, you know, took all this time for Bleeding Audio and, um, you know, I scheduled all, all, all of these, these things. I said no to people. I'm like very bad about saying no to paid work. Um, and, but I was like, no, this is my time. I'm working on my film. And, um, the scales tipped and I was like, oh, I keep saying no, because I've scheduled these things. I'm not willing to compromise on my bleeding audio days. And now my clients are going away, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and they're finding other people. So um, so I had to kind of swing in the opposite direction. But then once I kind of found that balance and knew um, one of them was like a longer term contract that I was able to kind of schedule those days, it it ended up balancing out nicely in favor of the film. But um, yeah, I actually I just I found that at least for my mental health with the project, like being able to fully dedicate myself to bleeding audio for a specific amount of time, and then be able to fully dedicate myself to um, the paid work was fairer to my clients, but also a little fairer to me in the film too. You know, um, like Ron Swanson says, don't uh, <laughs> don't half-ass two things whole ass one thing you know so and that's something that I definitely had to learn the hard way a couple times
1: well then what's the plan you kind of alluded to this earlier but what's the plan of attack for the next projects then or what have you learned in terms of workload and I know we again said there's no such thing as balance but that you're going to apply for the next project
2: Yeah, um, so I'm hoping to take some time for myself. Um, I'm kind of wrapping up this one last project and um, uh, for for a full-time gig and I'm transitioning into freelance. And my plan is to honestly take a couple of months to recharge because I'm very burned out. (laughs) You know, I kind of feel like I'm finally at the end of this marathon race for both like my film and like working full-time. And I'm very, you know, I'm also very fortunate because my husband has a full-time job. And we do this thing we call it baton passing, where like one person is the you know primary provider and does the work, and the other person gets to work on the dream for a little bit, and then we sort of like switch batons back and forth. That sounds so um, nice. Oh my <laughs> god! Please convince my entire family to baton with me. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's very. I feel very fortunate. Um, he's an artist, also. He does um, he does painting and he does concept art, and so. Um, it's, it's a very nice situation and he's a wonderful human being. Um, but uh, right now I'm kind of like handing the baton back <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, and I'm hoping to just take some time to just relearn my writing habits. Right now I, I find that um, my writing only comes in bursts cause I'm like pent up and I just sort of like explode on the page and get everything down and it's not very good, but at least it's on a page. And then I'll just kind of run away from it. And um, I basically my practice over my break is I plan to, like, create very defined writing habits and writing times so that when I reenter freelance and reenter the working, you know, you know, working either full time or probably freelance, um, I can have that habit kind of embedded in my soul again, so that Mm -hmm. I actually can, you know, meet my goals that I have for writing because by the end of this year I really do want to be in pre-production or play or be in development you know for um, for my next project and um, I feel like you know at least one of the screenplays I have it's very achievable um, another one is maybe a little more ambitious but has um, a bigger name attached to it so it you know might be able to get more support so you know it's it's a uh, I don't know, you know, like I'm I'm hoping to um be able to present a slate and just, you know, be able to get some more support, but um yeah, I'm just I think right now like just coming to the end of this road, you know, I need to like reconnect with my creative self a little bit and then, you know, carry on in in a, in a in a way that um is more sustainable than what I've been doing. <laughs> yeah.
0: Do you think that, like, after going through this whole process of Bleeding Audio and like getting into these film festivals and winning these awards, that that success is going to help you get your next film made?
2: I don't know, honestly. I hope, I hope it, it helps, you know? Um, I, I remember, um, you know, I was, I've been essentially a director on Bleeding Audio for six years. And I remember trying to pitch at an old company to like direct a project instead of just produce it. And they're like, oh well, we don't see any directing experience. And I was like, I, I, like I, I have this feature film that I've been working on for five years. And they were just like, well, it's not done, <laughs> like. But <laughs> okay. And yeah. so it, it's this, um, you know, it's this thing where I just feel like. The validation that it takes to get people to believe in you is just kind of hard you know like okay you have awards but it's just one film right like it's just one you know where's where's the other (laughs) stuff that we need to see and so i think for me it's going to be about diversifying and just like actually taking the time to like make that short film that i wrote you know three years ago on a weekend somewhere and just you know strengthen those muscles again, because I feel like my head's been so down into bleeding audio. And honestly, I think I forgot your question, but like my head's just been so like in the ground for bleeding audio that like, I just haven't had a chance to really, you know, stretch and, and show other skill sets and be able to kind of prove that I can go back into scripted, because that's the other kind of hurdle I feel like I'm going to be dealing with is, um, you know, I told people like, yeah, my next film is going to be like a, um, a narrative a scripted feature. And they're like, oh, aren't you a documentary filmmaker? And I was like, I'm a filmmaker, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I hope it I hope it helps. But um I don't know, a lot of people have awards. A lot of people have been at these film festivals. It's competitive, you know. So I just hope that my voice, you know, can be can be heard, you know. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's a little dark.
0: <laughs> no, it's great. It's a very honest answer. I love it.
2: So <laughs>
1: Think we need to move to our final five questions? One more question Aha, before I knew we it. do it. Um, <laughs> so, uh,
0: you just mentioned that you had a, an actor or, or a name attached to one of your scripts. Can you talk about that? Like, what you probably can't say who, but um, how did that come about?
2: Um, basically, um, it's a it's a musician um, and. Uh, he and I have been friends for a long time. And um, he, he and I like kind of reconnected through Bleeding Audio. And um, it's a story that he really wants to tell. It's a story I'm very interested in telling. And so we're kind of collaborating on this story together. And um, he's, you know, he's got a a bigger following than, um, than many of the, um, the, (laughs) than many of my other musician friends. And uh, because he kind of has that built in fan base. um, I know that if for whatever reason we can't get a studio attached or we can't get anybody else, you know, to like shell over the money, I, you know, as much as I would hate to go back to a crowdfunding platform and in, um, in my, my little my little beating heart, um, I know that we'd be able to engage a fan base, you know, and I'm not trying to shit on crowd fun- fund funding. I loved it. And like, I love engaging audiences one-on-one, um, but I definitely, <laughs> feel like that i might not have the constitution for another one unless i have a few other people supporting me with it um i basically did my last post-production kickstarter on my own and like it was the most stressful 30 days of my life (laughs) yeah
0: We've all been there, uh, as as you know, so (laughs) I can totally relate to that. I'm definitely not excited to go back and do another crowdfunding campaign for for any of my future projects. But (laughs) yeah, I don't know. We talked to a lot of filmmakers and there's some who like that's what they do. They just, you know, they do one. And then a couple years later, they do another one. A couple years later, they do another. And that's how they make their movies. And it's just like, wow crazy that they're able to do that consistently because I feel like the well dries up at some point right you know
2: like you think it would but I feel like um especially with what Seed and Spark is doing is if you think about it you know people who go and see movies are fans of whatever is on that screen you know I feel like very rarely you go and see something unless you're like oh that has so-and-so in it oh that was directed by so-and-so and I feel like with, you know, the democratization of all these art forms, music and film, like there's a really interesting like one-on-one connection that you can have with your filmmakers and your musicians. And filmmakers is a little more foreign, I feel like, to a general audience. People don't really understand that they can actually support an independent filmmaker and like have that one-on-one connection that they would with like a musician or an artist. But I feel like it's becoming more socialized. And I think that's what Seed and Spark is is actively working towards, you know, is like getting people to become fans of independent filmmakers who can who can do that, who can like come back and be like, hey, I'm making another film. And people are like, I liked that last one. Let's do that again, you know? And I I hope that that's something that like, you know, I personally can build and like other independent filmmakers can build. And if that translates to like the mainstream, that's cool. If it just translates to being able to make the art that you want to make without, you know, someone sitting over your shoulder and having an opinion every three seconds, then like, that's pretty cool too, you know? So I don't know, like, I, 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 I didn't mean to sound so negative on crowdfunding. I just remember, <laughs> I remember the like shakes I'd have like in the morning, like getting to my computer and like starting the day and, you know, um, those final what, when, when Kickstarter switches over from days to hours, like, that is the meanest thing I think anybody has ever like done. It's like four days from At four it's days. Like- <laughs> it's insane. It is literally. It is just mean. Honestly, <laughs> like, for those of us <laughs> with anxiety, it is so horrible. But um, but honestly, like I don't know. I've I've had a great experience connecting with people through crowdfunding, so I'm not opposed to it. I just would 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 like it not to be the only option.
1: <laughs> All right. Final five questions. Uh, What's the first film you ever made and how do you feel about it now?
2: Oh, um, I guess the first, what I would consider a film that I ever made was called We're Just Like You. It's like a, a, it was written by um, someone who was a teacher and a friend at my film school. It was basically about a female serial killer. And um, the script was originally about how she just doesn't understand how to connect with people except through murdering them. And it had all this dialogue and everything. And um, I'm not like a horror film person, and um, but I did find this idea of a woman like serial killer, but also someone who fails to connect with living people and can only connect with dead people, very interesting. And I wanted—I was like challenged with making it beautiful. So Mm. I'm still proud of it because it was honestly the first time I ever explored being a director. I you know, originally really just wanted to be an editor. Um, And uh, I loved the whole process, like through and through. So in a way I love it, but I also look at it and I'm like, oh, that's just not me, (laughs) like, (laughs) you know, Um, I'm not, you know, gory horror movie director, but um, yeah, sorry, it was a long answer. (laughs) No, (laughs) it's great.
0: Um, What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received?
2: Um, oh my gosh, there's, I could go a few different directions, but I will use this one. The only people, everybody who you see who's successful in the film industry, the only difference between them and someone who's not successful is they didn't quit. And that to me was like, not advice, but it was a one-liner that was like, oh, (laughs) that's true because it's hard. <laughs> it's really hard.
0: I, I love that. That's perfect.
1: Uh, do you have a goal as a filmmaker?
2: Mm. Oh, it's like just vague enough of a question to really hard. Um, I, I do. Um, I have always looked up to a lot of uh, directors. One in particular was Lynn Shelton Um, I thought she was an amazing director her passing made me cry a lot Um, but what I loved most about her and her films was just how she managed her career and so really my goal is to kind of mirror that career that Lynn Shelton had built for herself which is being a TV director and only directing the movies that she wanted to make the ones that actually she wrote or the ones that spoke to her soul you know and that's my goal as a filmmaker is to, I'd love to have directing TV be my day job. And I'd love to be able to use that job to make movies that I love and care about.
0: Nice. If you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself?
2: (laughs) Oh, there's so many things. (laughs) Um, Hmm. Uh Chelsea <laughs> vet vet your people very thoroughly. Everybody who works on your film needs to be under the same scrutiny as a job interview, and if you want to have great partnership and success with your film going forward, vet and do the research. also maybe um, maybe hire a lawyer early earlier. <laughs> Um, but that's, I I guess like what I would say is that, and just to distill it because that sounded really dark and abysmal, but, um, is, uh, I think that investing in a lawyer to just look over paperwork and everything is worth every penny. I think every young filmmaker should know this is that like, it seems really expensive, but just one hour of lawyer time could end up saving you so much other time and treating your film as a business instead of a fun side project is is what will differentiate you from being like a fun hobbyist to like a career filmmaker. And that was the hardest lesson I learned. And I feel like if I had gotten that in my head sooner, um, Bleeding Audio could have been done a few years earlier. Ulrich asked me that
1: question um, cause we asked each other these questions and my answer was contracts. So a hundred percent there with you. Yeah. Uh, and also, thank you for having an answer because we asked Dan Mervish this question and it haunts me that he didn't have an answer. He's like, I make really great decisions all the time. And it's like, Dan Mervish. Like, <laughs> He's like, you can't perfect. go
0: back in time. Like, what, what? what is that? I can't do that. It's like, yeah. Okay, <laughs> like, fine.
2: I mean, kind of fair. Like, it is one of those <laughs> things where I feel like it's so much more painful to look back and be like, oh, I should have done this. Right. I should have done that. But at the same time, Feel like especially when you're on a film for six years you know like you see those like burning pustules of, of regret <laughs> and you know <laughs> they are, and you just wish you could go back and resolve them <laughs> so um but yeah that would be my my number one is just like you know treat it like a business don't treat it like a fun side project
1: well that segues us perfectly to our last question which is is making movies hard
2: it's so fucking hard <laughs> <laughs> so hard. I, um, the, the thing that I've been saying in a lot of interviews, um, people ask the question, what did you learn about yourself in this process? And um, my answer <laughs> is, like, I learned why people quit. Like, I, I 100% learned that. Like, it's, it's really hard. And there are some really, really dark days that can happen when you're working on something that you love. But, like, the good days outweigh the dark days, you know, 100 to 1. Like, I I mean, there were days where, you know, that feeling when you're like, oh, this is why I'm on this planet. Like there were so many. No. <laughs> I don't know that feeling. Please describe it. <laughs> well, it was just, you know, like interviewing, interviewing people on this film or having moments where, um, you know, your conversation opened up somebody else to learning something new about themselves, or you mm-hmm. learned something that you found inter- interesting and you felt like you were creating something that could either help someone or just like tell a story that you just felt needed to be told. I don't know. Like there are just those days that just at the end of the day, I just felt, ah, I did the thing I was supposed to do today. You know, like this is the thing that I'm supposed to be here for. And those days were so good. And they, ah, it just, it felt so amazing. And, um, those days outweighed the, bad ones um in weight even though there were many more bad ones and there were good ones but it was like but I get why people quit and I don't think it's a thing to be ashamed of you know like maybe you know it maybe you need to quit but like I learned that I won't quit and I feel like that's what made me understand like that making movies is really fucking hard but Mm -hmm. I love making them so much that like it's it's worth it because the other side is pretty great too if you can get there
0: (laughs) wow well said um so where should we go to to find out more about you i mean do you have a trailer for bleeding audio that people should watch you have a twitter account we should follow Where, where should they do
2: Yeah, so you can find out all the latest about Bleeding Audio on our website, um, www.bleeding-audio.com. We're on all the socials, um, Twitter at Bleeding Audio Film, Instagram, wait, no. Twitter, it's Bleeding underscore audio. On Instagram, it's Bleeding Audio Film. And then on Facebook, it's Bleeding Audio Film. And you can find our trailer. um, You can just find it on YouTube. You can find it on Vimeo. And um, we're still doing film festivals. We have a couple coming up in May. Um, I don't know when this is going to be released, but on April 18th, we're screening in a real live theater in Melbourne, Australia. Mm. Um, and uh, we're going to be at the Julian Dubuque Film Festival next week, um, April 18th through the 25th. And I'll actually be there for in-person screenings. Wow! Yay! So excited. <laughs> like the Last movie I saw in theaters before the pandemic was mine, and the first one is going to be mine. And that feels really weird and kind of like narcissistic, but I'm a little bit excited about it.
0: <laughs>
2: wow. So that's awesome. Yeah, I'm excited to see it with an audience. <laughs> Yay.
0: Well, yeah, congratulations on all the success. It's so, Thank so you. amazing.
2: Thank you. It's been, it's been a crazy journey um so this feels really nice and validating and it's just really humbling you know it's it's like when you put your you know your little your soul into your art it's like they're just little horcruxes you know and just like people just kind of you know are watching it and you just kind of want that energy of like an audience witnessing your art and having the conversation around it and it's just been yeah it's just it's meant a lot so i'm very i'm very grateful and very fortunate to to be where i am with this so
0: awesome but liz what do you remember from our talk with chelsea
1: i remember all the stuff she told us after we stopped recording (laughs) uh that i told her i would never tell anyone (laughs) i remember all of that oh my Um, god teasing people you know i say this a lot but i love the type of filmmaker that chelsea is the one who you know makes the film come what may takes on different roles Figures it out within her work schedule Even if it takes several years And is like personally connected to the subject matter So I just thought She was like a perfect guest For what we're trying to do
0: Oh that's really sweet She'd like to hear that Um, (laughs) She was great I love Chelsea I've also been working with her for uh, I guess I worked with her on a project in December So I got to know her through that And she was talking about her movie And I was like oh man you gotta be on the show So it took us five months And we finally did it (laughs) But uh, but yeah, the thing I remember most is Burning Pustules of Regret This thing that she said that I wrote down In the outline, because I was like, oh my god That was so amazing, and she's like, you cannot Name the show Burning Pustules of Regret With Chelsea Krister. C- C- Damn it, Krister." Um but uh we might do it anyways we'll see.
1: We should just do it. Yeah, like we should totally ignore the fact that she said don't do um, it. Um
0: no, well, I remember just her journey, like I think that was really interesting to hear about like like how she came to making the documentary and like how it evolved over years. I thought that was really interesting and sort of I think kind of typical of documentaries like they don't they don't end up what they started as, which I think is so fascinating about them. Um, and yeah, just hearing about her plan and like what she's going for in the future and how she wants to utilize, uh, the making of the movie into making features, which it sounds like she's already doing. So that's, um, it's really cool. So I I can't wait to see what she ends up doing next. And I hope you guys get a lot of this episode because, because I know I enjoyed it a lot personally. Um, but Liz get shorty.
3: So you make movies, huh? I produce feature motion pictures. I got an idea for a movie.
1: Uh, This week on Get Ready, we have a brand new short film from Lena Pendarker called Awaken. And here's Lena to talk about the film.
3: Hi, my name is Lena Pendarker, and I'm the writer and director of the short film Awaken. I made the short film Awaken to explore a mother-daughter story about caregiving and how Alzheimer's affects a daughter who is trying to help her mother. I wanted to tell this particular story because I have a family member who has Alzheimer's and it's definitely very challenging. Awaken is about a short moment in time where Rocky, uh, who is in her forties is really struggling to kind of stay above, keep her head above the water. Her job is really stressful. Her marriage is crumbling and you know, she's lost her support system because her mother has Alzheimer's. She has a very brief moment with her mom where her, mother remembers something from her childhood and it's sort of like this moment of connection for the two of them and i really wanted to explore what that's like just to to lose somebody but to have this moment of connection i came up with the funds for awaken through a grant program at loyola marymount university where i'm a professor so um that was really helpful you know i've made independent feature films to low-budget indie features, and I'm always pushing myself to make new content and new material. And short films are a really good way for me to do that. I made Awaken to work with the actress Parman Nagra to tell a story about Alzheimer's in the South Asian community. I think in a lot of Asian American communities, we don't talk about these issues enough. They tend to be sort of closeted and not discussed. And I think that I really, really wanted to make something where the, the complexities of caregiving and the difficult choices uh, that people have to make are really explored. Um, and in terms of my career, yes, I'm always trying to just push myself to direct new and interesting things. And I do have a feature that's based off of this short, but I really wanted to make this as a self-contained short film that told a very specific kind of story. Now that it's out in the world, well, I had, you know, Awakened screened in a number of film festivals last year during the pandemic. And while it was a little bit difficult, it was also kind of great because the film played in online film festivals and I do feel like it got a lot of views and there were a lot of very interesting panels and forums that I was a part of, especially around caregiving, caregiving in the Asian American community, dealing with Alzheimer's or care of an elder one and being on those panels and really getting to talk about the issues during COVID-19 was really, really meaningful for me. It was a really great experience. And I'm really excited to now distribute it online so that other people can come and watch it and share it and discuss what the film is about. You know, I think in the edit, I did, in terms of Awaken and what I might do differently, I, I don't know if I would do anything differently. You know, I did the best that I could. And I think that in the edit, there were some changes that I made, but I'm really proud of the performances that we were able to get. Um, working with Parminder Naga was just such a amazing experience. She's really quite the legendary actress and I'm, I'm really, you know, and working with V. Kumari and Seamus Dever and all the other actors and cast and crew. I was proud of what we got and really felt excited to put it out there. So thank you. So,
0: um, this is a really interesting one for me. I watched it twice. I watched it when I first was sent it a few, like a month ago, and then I watched it again today and, um, you know, I thought it was shot really well. The production value was very high, um, and I guess one of the things that that struck me about it is it's so heavy. It's so like, like um, just dramatic and emotional, like every moment in that movie from the start to the end and like even when she doesn't even know about her mother having these issues like at the nursing home and she's like you know just giving her presentation before she gets the call even that little part is like so heavy it's like they're like Mm -hmm. act with every inch of your person and all the energy in and it's like nothing is light, nothing is status quo about it. It's all so weighted, you know? And it's like, man, ease up on the on the gas there a little bit on the drama. Um, <laughs> I guess it's sort of how I felt. Um, I also didn't really feel that it was... It seemed weird that the son and the husband left when the mother came for one night. You know, I thought like, you know... Maybe this has happened before, maybe it hasn't, but I feel like the instant like reaction for the husband to be like we're going to my my brother's house uh you know you're on your own <laughs> with this seemed a little cold and a little like really <laughs> you know and and my my uh, my mom took care of uh of her mom, my grandmother when she was sick. And it was, it was different. It wasn't, it's like my grandpa had something that was like dementia. And then my, my grandma had like, um, arthritis, like severe arthritis. So it was like two different separate issues, you know, but you know, similar kinds of things. Um, so yeah. And my dad was there the whole time and he never was like, I'm going to go get a hotel room (laughs) anyways, but you know, whatever, that's fine. Uh, and then, you know, I didn't, Find it really believable at all that she found her mom so easily at the end like like she she like was gone for you know hours and they didn't necessarily seem like they lived close to the beach and she we see her in a couple different places and then we finally see her at the beach and she just finds her mom it's like after losing people like 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 losing a cat or like not knowing where someone is it's like like even, like, trying to find some like, like, an animal after a block or a person after, like, six blocks or something would be hard, Not let alone however long that was. So that just seemed a little unbelievable to me. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, again, I just, I don't know. I think it was over-the-top drama-wise, um, and those parts didn't land with me. But, uh, you know, and I also thought the ending where the sister called, but she didn't pick up, was, like, they made it sound like, seemed like the world was ending, like, <laughs> Like the, on the, with the music and the heavy, the weight, it was like whoa. Like and I, and I, you know, I listened to what she had said, and she like, oh, she was going for for trying to make it like a thriller, and trying to make it like really like this, like not just a drama, but more like a genre film. And so I, I can see where that was coming from, but in the end, it just felt like, you know, that didn't land with me so well. Anyway, I don't know. So yeah, not the biggest fan, unfortunately, of this one. Sorry. <laughs>
1: Well, let me let's talk about this. So, um, <laughs> I I know Lena. I don't know her very well, but you know, I know of her, and she's very sweet and smart, and a great filmmaker. Um, when I saw the short, I was like, oh, it it didn't work for me. Um, but I thought, oh, you know what? It what it does work as as a proof of concept. If these are just snippets of a larger project that she's trying to get off the ground then this does make sense because nothing is solved there's no catharsis there's a lot of uh, background information missing um you know whatever's happening with the sister is never really kind of illustrated outside of these phone you know it's like there's a lot of things that this short is stripped of and i at first i was like really trying to make it work as a short and i was like okay this seems like an experiment in not giving the audience what they want that's really interesting I actually kind of respect that like in no way did you give the audience what they wanted the entire time that's that's an experiment anyway that's cool but then I thought no it must (laughs) be a proof of concept because we don't know anything about the tie to the ocean other than that story why would she go back to the nursing home when um the nursing home was the core of all the problems. Are we basically saying that the main character is just going to walk away from her mother? Like, I don't know what it all means, and I think I can't tell if it's purposeful or not. I think that's what I keep saying over and over again, Ulrich, that I just am afraid of saying. Is it? Does she say anything about that in the video?
0: Um. I think she was talking about how she was intending this to be a short from the beginning, and like she'd already made features before, and so this to her was always going to be a short, and she wanted to capture this feeling because she she had gone through or witnessed this sort of situation through um, a loved one, so she was like just trying to to capture that those feelings and in, in in that in that story, um, and then but she wanted to make it more like like of a thriller and more of a genre piece and less of a straight up drama. That's that's the, only, the two things I remember.
1: Well, it very much felt like a drama to me. Yeah. And that shot of the profile um, of our main character crying when she's on the beach is so beautiful and it's so polished. Just like you, I think it shot extremely well. It's designed well, it looks gorgeous. But for me, I need more answers. Like, as an audience member, I just need more answers. I'm not every audience member, right? I'm sure there are many people who would see this and be like, I get it, I went through this, I know what she's going through. But I've never gone through anything like this, so I feel like there's a big block between me and knowing what the protagonist is thinking. And I have no idea where she is mentally or emotionally throughout the entire short. Except for in that moment on the beach when she cries.
0: It's so, um, you know, it's so like, like, like it's so heavy and she's so, st- like, you know, stoic. Stoic. Oh, yeah, exactly. Sto- the whole time. And it's like you, you can't really read to how she's feeling. And she doesn't really, like, when her husband decides to leave, it, it's not like, oh, why are you doing this? It's more like, yeah, okay, that's fine. No, I respect that, you know? And it, it just, the, there wasn't a lot of conflict. You know around besides just trying to find the mom you know and then trying to deal with the moms that was I think maybe what was missing partly
1: well the the log line I wrote it down a poised executive puts her career and family on the line as she struggles with responsibilities toward her mother's progressing dementia and i just didn't think she was putting anything on the line yeah i didn't feel like her family was at risk it didn't feel like her job was at risk so and that's fine but i honestly feel like this is a bigger story than what we saw and i think maybe lena is just too good of a storyteller to do this format too she's too ingrained in the future world to really revert to a short, because this just feels like it's a taste of something much bigger.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess, like, you know, if if she had left the meeting in the middle or, like, was, like, halfway through her presentation and it just right. stopped, like, maybe then that would be different, you know? That would, like, be... Or
1: if work was calling her when she was looking for her mom and being like, you better get back here soon right. or something like that, right? Right. But she seems to have a lot of power and control and... It didn't seem like anything yeah. to the risk, and it's like her husband disappears for the rest of the film. So the only thing that she did, that was yeah,
0: it was like she didn't have drinks with that guy, but it didn't seem to be a big deal. It was like, oh, yeah. it's not like this is gonna make or break it y- y- you. It was just like, oh, you're not gonna go to drinks after your presentation with this person who may or may not be a potential investor, but you know that was never it clear. Tr-
1: What a tragic image, though, of that mother watching the ocean on a screen indoors. Yeah. That is like, oh, my God. Well, I was wondering, like,
0: Like, what what was that? Like, where did that come from? Like, did, did, did she bring that video of the ocean to them so, like, her mother could watch it? Or was it always there and they didn't? Have it before. I would
1: assume, yeah, I would assume that it wasn't, I didn't have anything to do with her because there was another guy watching the video, right? It wasn't just for her mom. Right. It felt like it was programming for the, I don't know what you call that, the senior center, the caretaking facility. I don't know what the appropriate word is. I guess if
0: if, if it's supposed to have been that it was always there, then I wonder, like, why did she not, why didn't she just go into that room in the first place? And just be calmed by the, the the beach, or did she need to be out to have that moment? I don't, I don't know. I guess lots of questions. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think if there was some change in the character, I think that's probably what we're getting at. Is like there was no change in in the lead character from the beginning to the end of the movie, you know? And like if like there was a rough sister relationship in the beginning, and then going through this experience with her mom made her like try to connect with her sister more, then that could be, like, a little bit of a fulfilling ending. But instead, it was like, oh, no, blo- ignore, you know, or whatever. It's like, oh, you called back too late. It's like, okay, well, all right. Well, I guess we didn't get that. Anyways, I want to hear what other people think. Are we way off base? Like, is-
1: Oh, wait, wait, oh, wait. Before, sure. before we cap it off, I just want to say one thing, which is I said earlier the phrase she wasn't giving the audience what it wanted, like, over and over again. But I want to say what a conventional Hollywood audience expects is is, she didn't give what a conventional audience Mm -hmm. conventional Hollywood audience would would expect from a short right I just I want to say that there's different ways to tell stories and yes this didn't follow the like character learned something or changed arc and and that is unconventional, and so therefore it's frustrating for us. But I think there is a world where a short like this would land. It just wouldn't be a conventional Hollywood audience that it would land with.
0: Yeah, I guess just to you know speak to that a little bit and play devil's advocate, maybe I think like if it wasn't so produced in a way that like a Hollywood movie is, if it didn't have the heavy music, it didn't have the polish. Mm-hmm. And it had this kind of storyline, then maybe it, it would feel more fulfilling, and you wouldn't be like scratching your head as much. but since the music is like cueing you up to feel like emotion or to feel this sort of thing that you're not getting necessarily, then maybe that's the the disconnect
1: that's really interesting, yeah.
0: But I don't, I don't know.
1: Let's, Lena, respond to us. Like, send a video back and let us <laughs> yeah, know
0: what you think. I, I mean, it, or that you hate I'm us. not saying it's not a well-made movie. It's just, you know, certain things, you know, didn't work for me. <laughs> Anyways, uh, thanks so much for sharing. And people, I want to hear what you guys think of this movie. Like, are are we like, like I was saying earlier, are we completely way off base? Does this work in a way that we're not seeing? Let us know. We'd love to hear. Um, but yeah, I think it's time for, uh... You've
1: got mail. You have it.
0: <laughs> I do have it.
1: My breath catches in my chest until
0: I hear three little words.
3: You have got mail.
0: We uh, skipped You Got Mail last week so we could complain and whine about filmmaking, um, which was really fun, and I enjoyed it. <laughs> but uh, we're back to talk about our good friend Gary Kennedy, because that's the only person... Who seems to want to give YouTube comments. <laughs> it's fine. We love Gary. It's great. So on our uh, episode uh, with Andrew Carlberg, Karl- uh, Gary, Gary Kennedy says, The opening guest station scene in a senseless act was shot and lit so well. It's amazing what some haze can do to really bring out some texture and depth. I thought the senseless act was going to be the guy walking over the Nissan Sentra and beating him to death. <laughs> Once he said gangbanger, I just nodded to myself and said, oh, it's one of those. <laughs> I love this guy. Before, ADP threw me off a bit, too, but I guess back in 07, things were still being shot on tape. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> then on our episode with Jim McGowan, Gary says, I can't find the short <laughs> Mirror site anywhere, but hopefully it'll pop up, and aren't you too fancy for dropping two episodes in a week? Um, I gave him the link to the short, and then he said, I didn't understand the short one bit, yet it completely kept my attention. And I'm fine with that. Such a well-produced and polished short. Um, so <laughs> I'm starting to get the feeling that Gary listens to this show just to find new short films to watch and nothing else. Um, and But maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. sure. But I also wanted to ask you, Liz. Do you think we should also read Twitter comments? Are people saying interesting thing on, things on Twitter that we're not reading? Because um, I don't really go on Twitter. No, but that's
1: my fault. That's entirely <laughs> that's my fault. All I do is log into our Twitter <laughs> account, announce that we have a new episode, and then I leave. Like, I don't. I know that, like, the thing I'm supposed to do is, like, oh, name a movie involving air vents and then we were supposed to get like 30 responses about air vets so that's audience building that's engagement um so no we have no real twitter engagement i also never follow anyone back when they follow us oh, you should i mean there's a lot of things that are problematic about the way i, I run mean, our social i'm saying you
0: should when i easily could too i have access on this thing called a phone right here i just don't do it um by the way, two movies that <laughs> came to mind with air vents, Die, Die Hard and uh, Aliens. So both winners. Um, I'm
1: thinking that... I'm, well, yes, a hundred thousand million times <laughs> present abs, a percent absolutely. I'm also thinking of, like, there's a comedy with, like, I think it's, like, Rob Schneider, like, climbing through mm-hmm. an air vent.
0: He climbs through an air vent in Judge Dredd. That's a fact.
1: Maybe that's what I'm thinking. Which is
0: about. also very good. <laughs>
1: yeah so maybe I will do this air vent I love it man Just see what people say There's so many air
0: vent movies that you can you can like you know mention air vent moments. I mean I'm, now I'm just going to go to a Simpsons episode, the one where you know D- Bart's dog gets stuck in the air vent and then Willie has to go get it and get greased up. another great air vent moment, not from a movie. I
1: don't remember that and I've seen like actually I've seen almost every single episode of The Simpsons so that's probably why I don't remember That one's it's like it's filled
0: way back. It's like season six or something. Five maybe. Oh,
1: it's in prime 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 spot that's like the good
0: years yeah the only ones i watch over and over again um but if you want to be like gary kennedy you can jump over to our youtube page and and you could take his throne you could take the gary kennedy throne and then we could be reading your comments every week instead of gary's and when then what then what would happen i don't know I wonder how much Gary enjoys this part of the show. If he just likes us hearing his name over and over again, or if he doesn't care, but I don't know. You could be the next Gary Kennedy. All you have to do is type into YouTube. Done. Um, We actually now have uh, 222 subscribers on YouTube. Raise the roof. Can't wait till 250. That's me. Great. Um, You can also support the show on Patreon, uh, www.com, (laughs) www.com. Who would go to www.com? What a silly thing patreon.com slash podcast and give what you can thank you guys in advance um if you want you can also send us a question comment or suggestion to podcast that make movies is hard.com we've gotten gotten things like you know uh, get shorty suggestions and uh you know pu- pump uh, pushes pushes uh what's the word Sug- promotions yeah pe- suggestions for people to come on the show we haven't gotten oh, a real nice. like actual question in you know I don't know
1: Oh, it's been a while. Um, That actually was a thing. You're right. People used to ask questions. We get like
0: two a month maybe or one a month. Now we get zero. So uh, I guess we answered all the questions already. That's great. Um, (laughs) You can also, if you really like the show, you could go leave a review for us on iTunes, which happened in April, which was amazing. Hopefully it'll happen in May. We'll see. Um, You can also leave reviews on other places too, I think. Maybe Stitcher. I'm not sure. Anyways. Finally, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at NMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies is Hard Podcast.
1: I just really enjoy how like we just devolve in this phase of the show. Like This is the segment of like probably old school Making Movies is Hard where we just say whatever comes to mind, which I enjoy. Um, no, it works. <laughs> uh, okay, thank you to everyone for listening. Thanks to Chelsea Christopher for coming on the show and for Ryan Davis um, from Smart House Creative for connecting us with Lena Pendarker uh check out our website makingmoviesishard.com where you can find links to all the things we talked about on this episode but do that in like six months because it's not there right now uh thanks to editor cameron for doing the editing thank you cameron and thanks to everyone for listening and watching oh thanks to lucas colshaw for the art um and talk to you all next week
0: Lena Penharker, Penharkar, Pen Penharkar. Maybe I don't know. Man, should I say Lena's name again? How do you say? It? How do you say it? Say it the right way. Uh, and then, so Cameron, I'm gonna make you do this, dude. I'm I'm gonna just stick it to you because I know you're edited. I'm gonna try ask you to edit this. Um, just drop this in over what I said earlier. Lena Penharker. Lena Penharker. Just drop that in.